The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Isaiah 24, verse 21. Read along with me. Isaiah 24, 21. <clears throat> On that day, Yahweh will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For Yahweh of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And His glory will be before the elders. As we've noted, 24, 21 through 25, 12 makes up a unit. It begins in that day, translated in the SV, on that day. We see the same prepositional phrase at the beginning of 26, in that day. In 27.1 and in 27.2 through 11. Same in that day structure. Four parts that are themselves unpacking a greater, a greater vision. A vision that we read about in 24.1. What day is it that... The enemies of God will be put up in a prison temporarily and then punished later. That day is, behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall come to pass in that day. That's 24 21. Even though it, we don't see the end, it shall come to pass that. It's, it's there in the text, just like it is in 24.2. And it shall be, in 24.2, and it shall be on that day. 24.21. So, this is an image of judgment. And in chapter 24, we read in verses 4-6 through six that... The nature of that judgment is because the earth as a whole, Israel included, has looked like all the rest of the nations. And so God, he says, enters in from Isaiah's perspective in the future, enters in in order to punish evil. All the world has broken the everlasting covenant, which I propose, building off of other texts, is talking about the covenant with creation, and all the world has sinned in Adam, all the world has sinned like Adam. And because of that, the curse of God is over all things. On that day, that God brings desolation on the earth, what we read is that there's going to be a group... that are going to be temporarily imprisoned. And then, parenthetically, the grammatical structure switches, so it seems as though it shoots ahead. There will be future punishment. 
What group are we talking about? We're talking about, it says, the host of heaven and heaven and the kings of the earth and the earth. And apparently, they're going to be punished because, verse 23, the Lord of hosts reigns and they don't like it. They don't like that God is establishing His kingdom. And so God's going to enter in and as the reigning God temporarily push back the animosity. Now in this book, we've seen the reigning God show up a whole bunch of times. And specifically, he says, when it is, behold our God and our God reigns, he will do it ultimately through his Messiah. This is the child king. He'll be born, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The government will rest upon his shoulders and he will carry the kingdom of God. And all the kingdoms of men will be put down in, his, in the midst of his reign. So we read, our God reigns, and then we read that there's these hosts of the upper realms, and there's kings of the earth that have had animosity toward him, and he will enter in and imprison them, restraining, and then, we're told, punishing. Now, among this group, even though we're going to go outside of our structure, we saw this in chapter 27, verse 1, in that day, another one of those in that days, in that day the Lord with his hand and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan. Now this, this word has parallels outside of the Bible in Canaanite texts. Leviathan is the term they use to describe a multi-headed dragon beast who's at odds with the world. He's the enemy of evil. And it, it appears God is speaking a language that others would have recognized. It says that this Leviathan who will be punished is the fleeing serpent, the twisting serpent. In that day, the Lord will slay the dragon. So I've said the whole Bible's message is this. Kill the dragon get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. The Bible's message. It's all summed up right there. The dragon has taken captive the girl and God is coming in through his son, the great groom, to slay the dragon and claim his bride. Now, this dragon is among those who, 24-22 says, will ultimately be punished. And it implies that when it says they'll be gathered together as prisoners in a pit, they'll be shut up in a prison, and after many days they'll be punished, that he would then would also, if he's ultimately the instigator of all the evil that is going to be punished, he, and, and he stems all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, right? That's the serpent we're talking about, the dragon of old. He's been a deceiver, he's been a murderer from the beginning. And his end was already declared in Genesis 3.15, the offspring of the woman, a single male descendant, will bruise your head, but you will bruise his heel. So, his end has been anticipated. What we're told is that in this day, God will enter in and have a temporary imprisonment 
and then he'll be, let, he'll be punished at the end. And with him, apparently, some who've been associated with him, kings of the earth. So our question today, what's at hand, is how do we understand the timing of this kind of prophecy? Now, look at the bigger structure here. 24, 21, that section I've proposed, according to the Hebrew text, runs all the way down to the end of chapter 25. 24, 21 through 25, 12. And what we see is this movement. First of all, the restraining and then the punishing of the wicked. So I already said that that mention of punishment in verse 22 seems to be parenthetical. And after many days, they'll be punished. Just know that. They'll be punished. Then in chapter 25, 1, you see, I was going to call him the psalmist. Uh, he's, he's praising God. I will exalt you, O Lord. I'll praise your name because you've done wonderful things, plans from of old. And I noted how that wonderful is the same word as in Isaiah 9, 6. And plans from of old is associated with the word for counselor. Wonderful counselor who's directly the reigning child king. You've worked, O God. And I think when we read that, how he's worked, we're supposed to remember Isaiah 9, 6 and think he's done so through his servant Savior. What has he done? These great works of old that he's purposed to do from the beginning. Well, he's crushed evil. He's crushed evil. You've made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, The strong peoples who were once against you are now glorifying you. The cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Why? Because as much terror as they brought on on, on your people, you've been a stronghold to the poor. A stronghold to the needy in his distress. A shelter from the storm. A shade from the heat. He's been a barrier, a bulwark, a protection. But that protection did not stop these people from being poor, did not stop them from being in distress. That's what it says. You've been a stronghold to the poor. You've been a stronghold to the needy in their distress. So they had needs. And he showed up in the midst of those needs. He didn't keep them from the needs. Hear that. These are a people who have experienced massive suffering in the context of a lot of evil, a lot of enemies. And yet God, rather than rescuing them out, preserved them through, and now they're in the presence of God. Death has been overcome, as we're going to see. And because of that, He's worth praising. He has subdued the noise of foreigners, verse 5. And then we return to the mountain. The mountain was mentioned in verse 23 of chapter 24. The Lord of hosts reigns on the mountain. And now we read, on this mountain, the very place where He is reigning, ultimately through His Son, by this time in the book, He will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. So we move from... Temporary imprisonment, 
which Revelation 20, we're going there in just a second, is going to call a thousand year or millennium period. And then comes the judgment. And God wins. Christ wins. What's followed is a feast. What do we know that as? The wedding of, between the, the, the Lamb and His bride, the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think that's what we're talking about. Jesus says, I won't eat this meal together with you again until I return at the kingdom. And then, so there's, there's two actions of God. The first one is that God says He will make for them a feast. The second one, He will definitively and decisively swallow up death forever. Forever. Revelation 20 is going to unpack the flow of this text. The thousand years, the defeat, the destruction, the praise. And so, I think we're going to see, I think John, part of the way that God inspires Scripture is with the apostles' Bibles open, just like he inspired the prophets. Remember 1 Peter chapter 1. The prophets of old, to whom God revealed that they were not writing for themselves, but for us, the prophets of old searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person in time the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. How is it that the Holy Spirit inspired Scripture? Part of it was the process of searching and inquiring. They had their Bibles open. And I think John, as part of the vision God gave him, part of that wrestling as he, as he considered the vision, as he wanted to write it down, at times God telling him, no, you can't write this part down. But part of it was massive thinking about the Old Testament. He was seeing things that Daniel saw. He was seeing things that Zechariah saw. He was seeing things that Isaiah saw. And chapter 20 is one of those. So here's Revelation 20. Feel free to open up there. We're going to spend most of our time in Revelation today. Maybe next week too. We'll see. Then I saw... An angel, John says, coming from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now that language of bottomless pit, you'll see a little footnote in your ESV that would just say the abyss. So it was the key to the abyss. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and he bound him in the abyss for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit. He shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years was over. After that, he must be released for a little while. So, our text said, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven and heaven and the kings of the earth and the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. And after many days, they'll be punished. I think that's exactly the text that John has in mind as he's writing this about 
the thousand years, which we usually tag millennium. Very next verse, then I saw thrones. This is all part of the thousand year vision. It's going to include a binding of that great devil of old, the serpent, binding him up for a certain purpose. And then it also includes this. At the same time that he is bound, this is happening. I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Like whom? I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. So there's martyrs in this scene. But they don't have bodies. He saw souls. People. Actual persons. But they're not decapitated. Don't picture them that way. Their bodies are in the grave. This is a spiritual vision of spiritual life. But it's not only those who were actual martyrs. It also includes... So, those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. Now, all of this probably awakens all kinds of images in your mind of things you've read or things you've watched, things that you've heard, There's two groups. Those who were witnesses for Jesus all the way to death and were actually, the reason for their death is that they stood for Jesus through their proclamation. But the second group, and I'll just give, give you my understanding of this and, and we could go further with our questions. But in chapter 14, There is not just a mark of the beast. There's also a mark of God and of the Lamb. They both have marks. And at the end of the book, when the beast is no more and there is nothing else accursed, the mark of the Lamb appears on all the saints. His name is between their eyes. Like frontlets between their eyes. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, a text I've preached in this classroom in the past, we read, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them, where? As a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, Orthodox Jews will take a little box and wear it. Here, or close to their heart over here, and they think they're obeying the law. But in Deuteronomy, seeing and Handing is, is shorthand for we do something or we see something. And I think what's being called for is not to wear little boxes that have the Scripture inside, but that everything I do would declare there's only one God and I love Him with all. 
that the way that I perceive reality has God only on the throne and that I live His way. And in the book of Revelation, those who maintain their profession, think about the Ten Commandments, how they're worded. Usually RESV or NIV just says, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And many of us have just learned, well, that means don't swear. Very literally, don't bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't carry it in vain. If you've taken it upon yourself, don't live in a way that's unworthy and not in accordance with the name that you're aligning with. That's what it means to bear the name in vain. It means you say you're a Christian and you're not living like it. These are a people who have bore the name of Yahweh and not bore the name of the devil. Now, most people don't identify, if they're non-believers, don't say, I'm living for Satan. That's part of the deception. The world, in different parts of the world, the way the mark of the beast is identified looks differently in different places. This transgender issue and low sexual ethics is not a problem in all the parts of the world. But it is here. And right now, I believe this is one of the definitive markers that's going to distinguish whether you are bearing the name of Yahweh or whether you're bearing the name of the serpent, his beast. It's about profession and it's about living. Those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, you're always worshipping, always. Who are you worshipping? What are you worshipping? What you revere, you will resemble, whether for restoration or for ruin. That's Greg Beal. He wrote a great, big, fat book called You Are What You Worship, or something like that. We are what we worship. What you revere, you will resemble. If you revere God, you'll begin to image Him. But if you revere something other than God, it's controlled by the devil, and you will begin to look like Him. And it will destroy your soul. Those who were unwilling to receive the mark on their foreheads or on their hands are here in the presence during this thousand year reign. They've died, some of them as official martyrs, others of them just maintaining, persevering all the way to the end. And they're with God. That's what he's envisioning here. The rest of the dead, that is, those who had bore the mark of the beast, who had identified with him, rather, there's only two kingdoms, right? There's the kingdom of God, or there's the kingdom of this world that's controlled by the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's at work in all the sons of disobedience, of whom you also once walked. That's Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That, I think, is a little parenthesis. When it says, this is the first resurrection, I think it's talking about that up there. Those who... The first resurrection for the... Those who persevered with God and did not receive the mark, they're enjoying some kind of a resurrection there. The souls that he sees beheaded. And then the rest, their first resurrection doesn't come till later. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. You want the first resurrection. 
And last week I identified Joel had experienced the first death. And he won't experience the second death, which is what Revelation calls being thrown into the lake of fire. Because he has received life in Jesus. And the question is, is this text talking about him? Or is it talking about something in the future? A thousand years in the future? Or is this a thousand years that's being realized right now? Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. They will reign with Him for a thousand years. But then, if you've got Revelation 20 open, the text continues on, and it tells us that after the thousand years, something will happen. Here's what it says. And when the thousand years has ended, verse 7, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them all. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. ESV has it this way, where the beast and the prophet also were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. That's the definitive end of all evil. And that's our hope, isn't it? Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Completely, definitively, decisively, and there will be no more accursed. And that will be a good day. So when it comes to the tribulation, I'm sorry, to the millennium, that's, that's what's being tagged thousand years. So we see the language of thousand years show up a handful of times. Verse 2, this serpent of old was bound for a thousand years. Verse 4, at the very end, there's a group that came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Verse 6, this group that was raised with Christ, that, sorry, that's reigning with Christ, will reign for a thousand years, and then when the thousand years has come to an end, the very end, what marks the end of the thousand years is that the devil is let out for a very short time. Earlier in the book it calls it three and a half days compared to three and a half years, which is the number of days that it associates with the thousand years. It's, it's, it's a weird overlap. A thousand years seems to be talking about the same period as the three and a half years, and it gives the specific number of days. And then, for three and a half days, the serpent will be let out, he'll gather all the nations for battle, and then his end will come. Now, there's different... Four different views and I've, that I've presented, just gone through this quickly in the past. And just as I walk through the four views quickly, just consider where you've been, where, how your general understanding has been. You've heard of a tribulation. That means things are bad. 
and bad because of the work of this serpent through his beast. And post-tribulational premillennialism, often called historical premillennialism, this is Pastor John's view, and as best as I know, it's still been Pastor Jason's view, is that after the tribulation, Jesus will return and that this thousand-year period that he's talking about will get established in a future millennium. And the idea is, when we're reading Revelation, we're supposed to read chronologically from the end of chapter 19 into chapter 20. So that there's a great battle at the end of chapter 19, and then the millennium comes. And then it's after the millennium that finally all evil will be put down in a future-oriented, we call it pre-millennium, pre-millennialism, because the idea is Jesus comes back before the millennium starts. Pre-tribulational or dispensational premillennialism looks a lot the same, except the idea is that the tribulation will get really bad just before the millennium, but Jesus comes back and the church gets out of here and does not experience the suffering at the end of the age. And then Jesus returns to earth and sets up his millennial reign. So it's still pre-millennium in that Jesus returns before the millennium begins, but it's future-oriented. But the idea that the church gets taken out in what's called the rapture. And then God does his final work among the Jews. Many Jews are saved. And then Jesus returns to earth and sets up an earthly kingdom for a period. Postmillennialism is that Jesus won't return until after the millennium. He came 2,000 years ago, and it's not too good, but we're going to enter into a period where all of a sudden the church has domination on the earth. And Jesus will reign spiritually through his church, not physically, and then he will return at the end and establish new heavens and new earth. And then, it's called amillennialism, but really it's realized millennialism, that those thousand years actually started at the resurrection of Jesus when he rose not simply from the grave, that's part of it, and then was glorified and is right now seated at the throne, and that the souls that were reigning with him are reigning right now. And so what that would mean is that when Jesus returns, he's already come once, when he returns again, we're not expecting anything further. In that moment, all evil will be put down. Now, on our Bethlehem College and Seminary faculty, we have three of these views represented. And that might cause some of you, as I said in the past, to just say, well, I'm a pan-millennialist, it'll all pan out. <laughs> so, Joe Rigney, Joe Rigney, is, Joe Rigney is the token post-millennialist following Doug Wilson. Pastor John is historic post-tribulational premillennialist. 
seeing all of what Revelation 20 is talking about as future, and then others of us are amillennialists, like Brian Tabb and me. And this is a big issue, but it's third-tier issue. Big in that it's complex. Third tier in that we're all brothers and we're able to fellowship on the same biblical studies faculty without friction. Some people say it only relates to how we interpret Revelation 20. As we're seeing, oh, it also impacts how we interpret Isaiah 24. And it gives clarity, depending on where we come out, regarding, in some ways, how we understand what's happening now through the church and what's happening for the dead, like Joel, and what we're expecting in the future. But today's a little bit different because, one, it's complex, and two, it does matter less than a lot of other things. So, you can just keep that in mind. It's important, though, in a class like this, to be, to be able to take times like today to look at um, different perspectives that godly brothers and sisters have. This is an in-house discussion. Liberals don't care about these things. But it's things that have placed many denominations into camps. Bethlehem is not a church, our, our elder affirmation, which guides all of our leadership, is very detailed, but on these issues, not even an issue, not even mentioned. We're confident that Jesus will return and that he wins. And that's what we call our team to affirm, that he will return bodily, that resurrection will be, bodily, will, will be about bodies being transformed in the future. But with all that in mind, I'm going to spend some time giving you my biblical understanding of Revelation 20 and Isaiah 24 and why I'm a realized millennialist. So preterism is that the idea that the book of Revelation was not written after the fall of Jerusalem, but before the fall of Jerusalem, and that a lot of the suffering, a lot of the images of destruction that are future-oriented within the book refer not to the ultimate end of all things, but to the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in 70 AD. That a lot of Revelation has already been fulfilled. So in contrast to a futurism, which would be premillennialism, this is very much the opposite. So a futuristic approach to the book says everything in the book is still not related to today, or at least the majority of it, is not related to the now, it's related to the future. A realized millennium, millennial approach to the book says actually I think this book is talking about mostly the church age between the first and second appearings of Christ. Over and over again, seven different ways of, for, of proclaiming the exact same story. Seven seals, seven bowls, seven trumpets. And, and it's like you're going around this vision from the same 
looking at it from different angles, and different visions include different elements. But all of them culminate in Christ's ultimate return and fixing all the problems and saving his people completely. Preterism says, actually, most of the book of Revelation gives us hope for Revelation 21 and 22, but most of the book, up to chapter, like through 19, um, 20, preterists are, some preterists would still hold to a future future millennium, some preterists, Preterists would still affirm a realized millennium, but they would see most of the book, at least up to chapter 19, like the great judgment of the beast. They define the beast as Rome, and it's been a long time since Rome had any power. So that's preterism um, is, is a different approach to the book, and it overlaps, though, with at least two. You can get people who would say, I'm a partial preterist and still would hold to Revelation 20 through 22 as being future. Or I'm a partial preterist, meaning that some of it was accomplished at the fall of Jerusalem, but it ultimately pointed still to a greater destruction. Um, So I'll just say that much on it. Uh, Let's see how we did this. Tribulation. Tribulation and rapture. Now, the rapture, when you hear of rapture, that designates probably for most of you a certain thought in your mind. Like, um, Like left behind, that's more contemporary, or go further back like the thief in the night. I saw that at some point when I was a kid. My dad's here today. I don't think he showed it to me, my dad Dave. Um, but I did see the thief in the night, and it, it kind of terrified me. You know, these giant, I don't know, six-foot-tall scorpions and stuff. Um, but then the Left Behind series is nurturing that, that same idea. It's, it's a futuristic, pre-tribulational understanding. And so the rapture, as it's come to be known for the last 140 years as dispensationalism has become, um, I mean, it really dominated the first 75 years of the 1900s. Most of the Christian schools that were established in that period, contrasting with Protestant liberalism that had risen in like the Ivy League schools of the East Coast, most of the Christian schools, like Northwestern, was grounded in a dispensational understanding of eschatology, that is, understanding of the last things. And it included the idea that the church has to get out of here so that God can finish His work among the Jews. In fact, they would even talk about the church age as a parenthesis. Like, Jesus came working with the Jews, they rejected Him, and so this thing that He's doing called the church is not anticipated anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, from my own teaching, you can see that I don't really think that's true. Like, I'm seeing the church anticipated all the time. Jew and Gentile, both. One in Christ is one new man. But there's certain dispensationalists today who would affirm that. Uh, They're called progressive dispensationalists. The tribulation, though, in these models is usually viewed as 
So the rapid, sorry, I'm, I'm, let me try to simplify here. The rapture comes out of the language of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That rise verb right there, sorry, not yet. They will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain, oh, I broke, will be caught up, caught up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That caught up verb right there, that caught up verb is associated with the rapture. That's the verb that's being used, translated from the Latin as rapture. Everybody who's biblical affirms the rapture in that sense. But the reason the rapture is mentioned here is because it's become associated, the term has become associated with a certain understanding of what the rapture means. All these other models would affirm a rapture in that the church will be caught up using the language of the king has won his battle. We see this verb show up outside the Bible. The king has won his battle and the people come out of the city to greet the king and celebrate his victory and bring him back to his kingdom. And so the post-tribulational premillennialists, the post-millennialists, and the amillennialists would all be reading 1 Thessalonians 4 in this way. We're caught up to be with the Lord. His reign, His victory has caused us to celebrate. We're moved up, whether it's physical or however it is, in 1 Thessalonians 4, how we're supposed to understand it. But the idea would be not that we're leaving forever, but rather that we bring Him back to establish the new earth or bring Him back to establish the millennial reign. As for tribulation... Every model, most people who, have, who are reading the text do think it's going to get really bad right at the end. But, except the post-millennialists struggle fitting that in. But the amillennialists say the same word for tribulation is used by both Paul and Jesus numerous times to talk about what the church is going to experience day in and day out, every single, in, but, but in pockets, selectively. The difference between the Great Tribulation and the Tribulation that we experience is the scope. So that the Tribulation is happening at the same time. And yet, there's restriction. There's restriction of that Tribulation so that it cannot defeat the church. In fact, in the midst of the Tribulation, the church is growing. And that's something that was never experienced in the Old Testament age. Deception prevailed even among the people of God. Most of them were rebels instead of remnant. Moses' words for Israel. You're stubborn, rebellious, and unbelieving. Or as we've seen in Isaiah, you have eyes but don't see. You have ears but don't hear. But it won't always be that way. So the tribulation is something in this view that is being experienced along with the millennial reign of God, but that at the end, in that window, when 
the devil himself is let out of his binding, it will get really bad. So that, that's how the different views would handle rapture and tribulation. So these... Joe Rigney, he's, he's always a little weird. And so these are the two prominent views that he would embrace me for saying that. He'd, he'd just say, yeah, I am. Um, but these are the two most common views in the church today. Because most in the church don't see postmillennialism in the Bible. Sorry, maybe I should reword this. In our Bethlehem circles... That's much better, more proper. In our Bethlehem circles, these would be the two most prominent views. Pre-tribulational, pre-millennialism is still very popular in the world, but most schools that are associated with dispensationalism are altering, have altered their understanding of, they don't view the church as a parenthesis anymore like most dispensationalists did in the past. Because they're recognizing how much Jesus and the New Testament apostles draw on the Old Testament and are saying it's being fulfilled right now. So that when God said to Abraham, through you all the nations will be blessed, and when he said through you, he ultimately meant through the offspring, namely Christ, that Jesus is, is working something and that all of a sudden the new covenant in Jesus includes not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles both as one new man in Christ. And most dispensationalists today that are in the academy are affirming that understanding of reading the New Testament. But we don't have any dispensationalists on our faculty. We have historical pre-mill and amill guys and then Joe Rigney. 25 after. So here's my thesis. This is, this is, I wasn't always here, I'll say that. I grew up learning dispensationalism. My senior year of high school, I said to my grammar teacher, Mrs. Bergmeier, I really, I was in a Christian school, I really want to just learn about the end times. So she gave me a stack of books with big charts in them. And my senior year, I wrote, it, I'm sure it was just a dynamite paper, um, <laughs> about, about the end. And, but I, I really hadn't, I didn't know how to read the Bible. I didn't, I knew how to follow what others had said. And it, it took a long time for me to begin to read on my own. And then I've gone through a journey. In 2005, I was not, an amillennialist. I was this historic pre-mill guy, and because of that, I was able to teach at Northwestern College, because unlike Bethlehem College and Seminary, Northwestern actually requires historic premillennialism for their faculty. And not dispensationalism, but you have to hold to a future millennium in some way, in contrast to realized millennialism. And that's where I, I was. I was comfortable, but I had questions. And now... I feel like I'm increasingly here. Realized millennialism. And yet, I don't at all hold it as uh, 
hard as I do big God theology, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, it's, it's not up in that category at all. So good arguments could cause me to sway differently, but I'm going to just unpack this for you. This is my understanding right now. The millennium is realized during the church age. That's today. We're living in the reign of Christ. And Joel is right now ruling and reigning with Jesus. His soul is there, but not his body. That he's already experienced the first resurrection. That's my understanding. And it's not something still to come. The millennium is realized during the church age as God limits Satan's deceptive powers and lets deceased Christians reign with Christ in heaven. The millennium began at Christ's resurrection and Pentecost and is concluded by a resurgence of Satan and his servants' deceptive assault against the church, followed by their defeat and eternal judgment. That's my understanding of the millennium. And what remains to be had is an argument for it. And here it is. Service is over. Um, In preparation for next week, Just open your Bibles again to Revelation 20, and let me just make a few observations. A premillennial understanding doesn't put a chapter break between 19 and 20. It understands that what's at stake between 19 and 20 is chronological succession. So what we read is... Verse 19 I saw of chapter 19. I saw the beast and the kings of the earth. Hear that. The beast and the kings of the earth. Sound like Isaiah 24? I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make... It doesn't include this in the ESV, but it's there. The war. As if we're supposed to know which one it is. The war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Who's that? Look at verse 11. Then I saw heaven open up and a white horse, one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus coming back at the end of the age, either before the millennium or after the millennium. He's on a white horse, coming with sword in mouth, ready to destroy all enemy powers. And all the enemies, all of a sudden are coming after him, the enemies of God and his reign. And it says, the beast was captured, verse 20, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which, what did he do? Deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. So you've got a group that are still, that they're deceived, but not everyone. And those who worshipped its image, these two men were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. That's the ultimate end. It's called the second death. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. There's a giant battle. It's called the war. And Jesus does away with the enemy. Then we move on to chapter 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the keys to the bottomless pit and he sees the dragon, that's different than the beast and different than the prophet, but he's the orchestrator of both. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. Can you understand how a chronological reading would say, okay, there's been a great battle at the end of the age and now what follows is 
a thousand year period wherein the serpent, the devil, is bound and the people of God are allowed to flourish and reign with Jesus. That's the chronological reading that gives rise to pre-millennialism. Jesus returns on his white horse, does away at the end of the tribulation, does away with all the enemy powers, and then we enter into a thousand-year period. Not necessarily a thousand years, but it's, it's a symbolic, perfect reign of Christ on the earth before the new heavens and the new earth. But, if you instead approach Revelation, as I do, as seven cycles, each of which deals the, uh, details the period between Christ and His church, every time, returning back to the beginning, going to the end, beginning, going to the end, seven times, in different ways, beginning, going to the end, it's especially seen, so the sevens are very prevalent throughout the book, seven stars and seven lampstands, but especially in these visions, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls, the premillennialist will read all of these in succession. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, followed by another seven, followed by another seven. I think it's seven, seven, seven. And it doesn't mean that all the ones are lined up, all the twos are lined up, but that during this period, all of these from different angles are portraying this period of the curse that Isaiah 24 talks about. Period of judgment and death and wars and rumors of wars and pain. And then... 1921 ends the cycle. That that judgment, the war, at the end of chapter 19, is actually the war that we read about in chapter 20, verse 8. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for, for battle. But it's the battle. It's actually the war. It's the exact same word with the definite article plus the word. Why the translator translated it battle here and war in the previous text, I honestly do not know. It's the exact same Greek, Greek word. To battle for, to, to gather for the war. But if the, a question that we would have to have is, if in chapter 19 the enemies of God were put down, what enemies are left now? But the war gives rise to another, the war. I think it's the same war. Because what we're doing is we're looking at the exact same story now. Going back, I think 17.1 begins at the beginning of where Christ returns. We'll look at this next week. The persecuting of the dragon. He's cast out of heaven and he wants to destroy the woman who's giving birth to a child. That's the beginning of the church age. And we're going to look at the parallels between chapter 12 and chapter 20. But the war that comes in 20 verse 8, I believe is the same war that comes at the end of 19, which would suggest then that we've actually, we're, we're retelling the story from a new angle. And that all of these war texts are the same war. 
And it's all growing out of, it's a quote from Zechariah 14. They are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole earth to assemble them for the battle. It's the war. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with the armies gathered to make the war. In 28, um, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the war. I think all the wars are the same war. And you're looking, this book has seven sections, and each section as if you're walking down a seven side, around a seven-sided prism. And it's describing it, and every one goes in different angles, and then the last one takes you the furthest, all the way into the new heavens and the new earth. But we want to see what Isaiah does, what John does, and we need more time. So let's pray. Father, I pray that you would be our help. Thank you that you win. That's what matters. You're, on, you're for us. The one who wins is for us. That's what matters. Uh, we wouldn't want you to be against us. You, the rider on the white horse, who deserves all worth, all glory, all honor, we want to live that way. Move us in that direction. Generate holy fear that keeps us from sin. Help us to honor you. Thank you that However things are going to work out, we know you're in charge and you win. And we look forward to your definitive overcoming of all evil. And we celebrate that already you are reigning and that, that all that power, authority, is working for us through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Claiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.